How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. About 25% of America's imported oil comes from Canada, and our neighbors to the north will send even more if a controversial new pipeline goes ahead as planned. The $7 billion Keystone XL pipeline would deliver about 800,000 barrels a day of crude oil from Alberta's oil sands, also known as tar sands, across Montana and several other states to refineries in Texas. The U.S. Department of State recently declared that the pipeline poses limited environmental hazards. Supporters cheered the decision and say the project will create jobs and supply affordable and reliable energy from a friendly source. Opponents say the filthy tar sands will cause a spike in pollution that is destabilizing our climate and lock the United States into high-carbon transportation fuels for decades to come. President Obama is expected to make a final decision on the pipeline by the end of the year. For the next hour, we'll discuss environmental and economic aspects of the Keystone XL project with our live audience in San Francisco and two experts on each side of the debate. Cassie Doyle is Consul General for Canada here in San Francisco and former Canadian Deputy Minister of Natural Resources. Jason Mark is editor of the Earth Island Institute, who recently reported from the Alberta tar sands. Carl Pope is chairman of the Sierra Club, and Alex Porbet is president of Energy and Oil Pipelines at TransCanada, which is proposing to build the Keystone Pipeline. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you all for coming. Um, Alex Porbet, let's begin with you. Why should the United States approve and build this pipeline? You know, I think it, it really comes down to a, a number of issues. And if you, if you think about it right now, the U.S. Uh, consumes about 15 million barrels of oil a day. They, uh, they produce about 4 million barrels a day. So the U.S. on a daily basis is importing about 11 million barrels of oil per day. And I think it comes down to, uh, and, most of the forecasts that, that are out there, including the forecast from your federal government, would expect that that oil demand in the U.S. would likely remain stable for many years to come. So we're, we're at the point where it is, uh, it is very apparent that the U.S. is going to need to continue to import oil for a number of decades. And really, we're now down to the question of where do you want that oil to come from? Canada is already the largest uh, uh, importer of oil to the U.S., um, and we are we would expect the oil sands, uh, with growth of production from the oil sands, we have the ability to add significantly more imports to the U.S. So it's a question of energy security. Uh, if you take a look at the other countries that import oil to the U.S., uh, they are largely countries uh, that that in many cases do not share the values of Americans in, in certain cases are uh, actively against a lot of those values. And to suggest that those other countries are more responsible environmental citizens than Canada uh, really begs comprehension to me. Canada has proven itself to be a very good steward of the environment. We have uh, excellent, transparent, 
environmental rules for the development of our resources. And I think when you get down to the point of where do you want to get your oil from, it is far more compelling to be getting your oil needs from Canada rather than getting it from other countries such as Libya, Nigeria, or Venezuela. Carl Pope, why are you opposed to this Keystone XL pipeline? Well, what you just heard is a story that says, gee, if we approve this, uh, the oil we get, well, in fact, it's some of the filthiest oil on the planet in terms of the way it's produced, but at least it's from Canada, uh, which is a friendlier country than uh, Libya, I will agree, uh, or at least was a week ago. Uh, and it'll be more secure because it's next door. Uh, the only problem is that would be true if we were going to import more tar sands oil into the United States and keep it here, but we're not. This is really an export pipeline. It's not really an import pipeline. The United States is going to be used as a transit zone and a refining zone. We're going to take the environmental risks. And by building this pipeline, the people who produce this oil, by their own admission, plan to raise gasoline prices and oil prices in the American Midwest, where the tar sands oil currently goes, by sucking more of it into more expensive markets in Latin America and Europe. The fact is, right now, the American Midwest has the cheapest gas in the country. And it has the cheapest gas because it has access to just about as much tar sands oil as it needs with present pipelines. The American Midwest does not need a lot more tar sands oil. The demand is not there. Nor is the demand there in Texas and on the Gulf Coast. Those are actually America's great oil-producing regions. This is a little bit like carrying coals to Newcastle. But they're not going to stay in Newcastle. What's going to happen with this oil is it will be shipped to refineries in Texas. It will be refined into diesel, some gasoline, some jet fuel. And a large part, perhaps all, of that diesel, jet fuel, and gasoline will be exported to Europe and Latin America. The United States will bear the environmental risk. The United States will face higher Oil prices. In fact, the State Department estimates that building this pipeline will increase in the official EIS, which Alex is otherwise going to defend. The official EIS says that America's export bill will go up 1.5%, $6 billion a year, if we build this pipeline in any of its options. So this is really not what it's being presented as. This is not a way to give America more access to affordable, secure tar sands oil, albeit dirty. That's the story you hear. Yes, it's dirty, but you get these other benefits. We're not going to get these other benefits. The oil companies are going to make larger profits. That's who's going to benefit because the oil is not going to stay in the United States to bring our prices down. They are very clear about the fact that they think prices in the Midwest for oil are too low. They don't like the fact that we're not right now paying OPEC prices for oil in the Midwest. We are on the coasts, because on the coasts, the oil that comes here is OPEC can manipulate its price. OPEC is not able to manipulate the price in the American Midwest, and that's what they're trying to change. We'll get Cassie and Jason in here in a minute, but Alex, prepare your response. Well, I'd like to, I'd like to respond on a, on a couple of points. I think the first point I'd, I'd like to uh, respond to is this allegation that the vast majority of this oil uh, from Keystone XL will be exported offshore. Let, let's just go back to the facts. Every day, the U.S. consumes 19 million barrels of refined products a day 
and it produces 4 million barrels of oil. So there's 15 million barrels of imported oil and refined products. As a result, it, it, it would be inconceivable for uh, the large portion of those refined products coming from Keystone to be moved offshore. Uh, the U.S. pays world price for oil. Uh, Canadian oil is some of, probably right now, the cheapest oil that is available to U.S. producers, and they are net massively short of refined products in the country. So from time to time, there may be some small amount of refined products that go offshore, but the overwhelming amount of oil that is refined in the Gulf Coast would clearly be intended for the U.S. To move it offshore, you would incur incremental transport charges. Why would you take more, spend more money to move it offshore when you have higher value markets in, in the U.S.? So that's, that, that, that would be the, uh, the, the first point that, uh, that I want to make on that. Um, with respect to this argument about raising prices in, in the U.S. Midwest, let, let's be very clear. The, the opponents of Keystone XL, you know, quite conveniently interchange the oil price with refined product price. It is a fact that right now, because of the increasing production of oil from the oil sands and increasing production from the Bakken formation in Montana and North Dakota, uh, we are right now seeing a temporarily depressed price for WTI crude, in it, which is priced at Cushing, which is a Midwest crude. Um, that does not correspond to decreased refined product prices. Right now, refined product prices in the Midwest are exactly the same price. In fact, they're a little higher than refined product prices in, in the Gulf Coast, and that makes a lot of sense. The refinery, the largest refining center in North America is in the Gulf Coast. It not only provides refined products for the Gulf Coast area, it also exports refined products to the U.S. Midwest and to the Atlantic coast of the U.S. In order to attract those, in order to attract refined products, to the Midwest, Midwest, Midwest consumers of refined products actually have to pay more money. They pay the Gulf Coast price plus the transportation to get it up there. The beneficiaries of a depressed WTI price are Midwest refiners. When we add 800,000 barrels of oil, and the Keystone pipeline will remove that bottleneck and allow that WTI barrel to get down to the Gulf Coast. It may increase and probably will increase the price of WTI oil, but what we expect to see is a significant decrease in the price of refined products. Prices of refined products are set in the Gulf Coast. They're not set in the Midwest. What you're seeing with depressed WTI is refiners are getting larger margins in the Midwest, and they are not passing that uh, margin on to consumers. They are playing Gulf Coast refined products plus transportation. Let's get on to one of the other issues, which is how this oil compares to other types of oil and its relative uh, uh, carbon intensity toxins. Uh, Jason, Mark, you've been up, been up there and done some reporting. How does Alberta oil compare to other, other crude oil in terms of its carbon content and other... Uh, it's got a bigger content? carbon footprint. Um, if you just even take some of the most conservative figures, which come from Cambridge Energy Research Associates, they say that to get a barrel of oil from the Canadian tar sands to the retail pump, is 30 to 70% more greenhouse gas intensive than the average barrel of oil consumed in the United States. 
Now, if you actually go what's called wells to wheels, the whole life cycle, it's still 5 to 15% more carbon intensive. Now, maybe 5 to 15% doesn't sound like a huge number, but at this point in time, I don't think we can afford any increase in greenhouse gas emissions or greenhouse gas intensity. Um, so to say that, and especially some of the, the new processes that are coming online, which is called in situ um, extraction, where they inject uh, you know, steam into the ground, that takes a lot of energy to do that. Canada is using one-fifth of all of its natural gas just to extract tar sands oil. You have to use a lot of energy to create some energy. And so the greenhouse gas intensity um, is, is much higher than the average barrel of oil. And I think that, to me, is one of the most compelling claims. I mean, I, I was really surprised. Um, you know, the U.S. State Department said that, that this pipeline will have no significant environmental impact. As a journalist, that felt to me like the classic example of the headline writer not actually reading the story. Because when you go into that report, you see that the State Department itself says that, um, according to a U.S. Department of Energy survey, uh, according to the U.S. Department of Energy numbers, uh, oil from the tar sands are 17% more greenhouse gas intensive. That's a significant environmental impact to spill all of this oil into the atmosphere. And I don't think we can afford it. Cassie Doyle, the Globe and Mail, the national newspaper in Canada, recently said that oil sands will single-handedly undo greenhouse gas gains made by weaning the country's electrical supply off coal, according to a report from Environment Canada. It cited that carbon pollution will triple from 2005 to 2020, and by 2020, oil sands will uh, carbon footprint will be more than the entire province of Quebec. Again, this is according to an Environment Canada study. So Canada's moving towards clean energy in some ways. Uh, the price on carbon in Alberta and, and British Columbia moving away from coal, and yet your own environment ministry says that the oil sands will negate all of those benefits. Yeah, and, and in, I'm not sure about those projections exactly, but, but a couple of things that I think are really important. One of them is that the, the, there is, has been significant improvements in the carbon intensity per barrel in the oil sands. So one thing that I think happens sometimes is that we assume that the oil sands production is static when it comes to environmental performance, when since 1990 we've seen a 30% improvement in the carbon intensity per barrel. And we're going to see continued improvements on that front, given the amount of investment that's going into technological technological studies to improve the energy inputs into producing a, a barrel of oil. But I do think that Canada, well, one thing that's important to note is Canada and the U.S. have the very same target at a national level for our GHG emissions. That was the target inscribed in Copenhagen of a 17% below 2005 in 2020. So we have, I think, a very shared environmental approach when it comes to GHG reductions. And we are very proud of the fact that just last week, we started the legal process to ensure the phase-out of all coal-fired electricity in Canada. And depending on the projections and the report that you're, that you're re- referencing, there's some different projections that are being made, but Canada has adopted a GHG reduction target that's exactly the same as the U.S. We are making significant progress when it comes to our electricity fleet, and our Minister of Environment has announced that major emitters of GHG will be regulated. You know, we have been looking to align with the national approach in the United States when it comes to GHG reductions, and that still, I think, is the interest of the Government of Canada, 
But our Minister of Environment has announced that there will be regulations on GHG emissions, and that will include the major emitters in the oil sands. Well, a lot of people know that governments can announce goals, and they often miss them. A lot Mm -hmm. of governments miss their Kyoto goals. And Mm -hmm. to say that the U.S. has the same 17% goals as uh, Canada has the same 17% goals as the U.S. isn't necessarily saying a whole lot because you could miss those goals. uh, Well, they previously had tougher goals, so uh, they backslid. But, But I do think that it's important that if you compare Canada to any other energy supplier to the U.S., you're going to find that our environmental uh, regulations are more aligned. Though the oil sand emissions have already surpassed all the autos in in Canada, and there's real concern about, you know, that this, you're going clean in some ways, but this Alberta oil sands or tar sands is this huge carbon pool that could really cause Canada to miss its goals Mm -hmm. uh, or to export its pollution to the United States. Uh, it just seems to be, I'm trying to get the contradiction yeah, and, between and, and what perhaps, Canada's doing. Perhaps I can just just put on the record something that there's been a lot of misrepresentation on the emissions from the oil sands. They represent about 6.5% of Canada's emissions right now, mm-hmm. 49 megatons in 2010. They are not in any way larger than our transportation emissions. The largest source of emissions in Canada is in the transportation fleet, and we have adopted the fuel standards that the, the fuel standards that were initiated here in California that the Obama administration the adopted. auto efficiency standards. auto efficiency right. standards mm-hmm. we have the same auto efficiency standards now and are committed to continue to have that alignment with the U.S. But just to put it in perspective, our oil sands emissions, as I said, are six and a half percent of the overall emissions in Canada, and they represent on a global basis 0.1 percent of carbon emissions globally. Because Canada, on, on its own, contributes about 2% of GHG emissions. And our oil sands, as uh, in comparison to, for instance, the coal-fired fleet in the United States, it's just over 2%. Uh, and, and because I think there's a lot of misrepresentation out there just in terms of the scale of emissions. But, the, but Canada wants to scale oil sands uh, production, so that number is going to grow and change if this pipeline happens and if, if this industry grows. There's a lot of capital investment going into the oil sands, so you agree that that number is going to grow. It's going to grow, but there's going to be a continued investment in technologies that will reduce the carbon intensity per barrel. We're discussing the Keystone XL pipeline at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club with Cassie Doyle, Consul General for Canada and San Francisco. We also have Jason Mark, an editor at the Earth Island Institute, Carl Pope, Chairman of the Sierra Club, and Alex Porbet, President of Energy and Oil Pipelines at TransCanada. I'm Greg Dalton. Um, Alex, you've been wanting to jump in here both on the number of missions and also sort of the baseline that uh, oil sands relative to other p- types of petroleum mm-hmm. uh, do you agree that they're dirtier than conventional crude? Well, it, 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 it's always a question of, of degree, Greg. And I, I think, you know, interesting, uh, interestingly, we, we were just talking about uh, the CIRA report. Well, uh, you know, Cambridge the Cambridge Energy Research Associates. Cambridge Energy Research Associates is one of the, the most respected energy uh, research firms in, in the world. And the great news is that all of you here, I, I just heard from Greg, that uh, Dan Jurgen, who is the chair of CIRA, is actually going to be speaking. So uh, everyone here will get the opportunity to ask him himself uh, what, he, what he thinks of it. But in, in their most recent study, uh, one, one of the, the things that, that there, there's a number of ways that uh, our opponents use to exaggerate the, the greenhouse gas intensity 
of the oil sands is number one is, is this issue of, of wells to wheels versus wells to refinery gate. It is a fact that anywhere between 80 and 90 percent of the greenhouse gas uh, related to a barrel of oil does not come from the production and refining of it. It comes through the combustion of the refined products uh, in the automobiles or at, at, out at the tailpipe. So right off the bat, we're talking about a fraction. Uh, we're arguing about a percentage of a fraction. Sierra, uh, in their most recent report, identified one, one of the errors they, they found when people looked at relative greenhouse gas is that they were comparing the greenhouse gas intensity of the average barrel of oil sands crude with a barrel of WTI. Well, WTI is a light, sweet oil, produces less greenhouse gas emissions. The problem is, is that WTI in no way, shape, or form represents the average barrel of refined or of oil that is con consumed by refineries in the U.S. Uh, the refineries in the U.S. are increasingly using heavy oil in their refinery runs. That makes sense. Heavy oil is a lot cheaper than light, sweet oil, and light, sweet oil supplies worldwide are decreasing because it was the it was the highest quality it was the easiest to find we're seeing the slate of oil production across the globe moving increasingly too heavy so you know when you think about what happens if canadian oil no more canadian oil is allowed to get to the, to get to refineries in the us gulf coast those refineries spent tens of billions of dollars to configure themselves so that they could run these heavier crudes. These heavier crudes are cheaper. If Canadian oil does not get to them, they will source heavy crudes elsewhere in the globe, and you will get the same emissions uh, uh, being produced worldwide. The other comment I would make is there is a big difference between assuming that by stopping Keystone XL, you're going to stop the development of the oil sands. You heard Cassie talk about it. The oil sands really represent the engine of economic growth for Canada for at least the next five decades. If, if, if the U.S. market were to be closed off for incremental barrels of Canadian oil, it is not a fair assumption to assume that the people in the oil sands will stop developing that crude. They'll continue to develop and, and produce that crude. They'll do it reliably and they will do it conscientiously but it will go to other markets. And, you know, the, the globe and the, uh, the atmosphere does not respect borders. Carl Pope, let's have you respond to a couple of points there. One, that the refineries will get crude oil from somewhere, that this Alberta oil will find a market somewhere. And number three, demand is the problem. It's all of our cars that create the demand for this stuff. We're the problem. Well, let's look at some of the numbers, because if you look at the impact of tar sands oil versus other sources... You were saying, well, it's not a big part of Canada's total energy, carbon emissions, but that's not including the result of consuming it. You were saying it's not that much or a percentage because you're including the well-to-wheel. So the reality is that the world cannot long-term, there's enough conventional crude. If we burned all the conventional crude that there is in the world, we would fry the planet. If we burn all the conventional crude plus a lot of unconventional crude, we doubly fry the planet. We really can't afford to become dependent on this much oil. You're right. The issue is demand. But it is not necessarily the case that the only way 
to change course is just to go after demand. We're going after demand. Canada's going after demand. I think this is a bad project from a bad industry from a fundamentally good country. I want to be clear. I don't want to trash Canada. <laughs> We're not so great. But what we discovered was once you build these facilities, once you build this infrastructure for an oil-dependent economy, it's much more expensive to move off of an oil-dependent economy. Tar sands oil basically doesn't make economic sense unless the price of oil is north of $80 a barrel. The world cannot afford to continue to produce huge volumes and consume huge volumes of $80 a barrel oil. That will make Alberta rich. It will make Saudi Arabia rich. It will make North Dakota rich. It will make Alaska rich. It will make Venezuela and Kuwait rich. But it will impoverish the rest of the world. We need to be putting the dollars that are currently going in to developing the tar sands. In that Canada needs to be developing an economy that is not dependent for the next five decades on the growth of the tar sands industry. Because if the tar sands industry goes for the next five years, Canada's permafrost will all melt. We cannot afford in the United States to have Canada give us another fix. And this is another fix for our addiction to oil. And we cannot afford to become the transit pipeline for continuing to feed oil to Europe and Latin America. The world needs to get off oil. Cassidy Oil? I just wanted to respond to to an assumption that the only thing happening with Canadian energy is the oil sands. Because, as I mentioned earlier, we do have a, a massive hydroelectricity resource in Canada. And we also are investing a lot in renewable energies and energy efficiency. So sometimes in these discussions, Canada gets portrayed as being only a purveyor of oil. And in fact, we do have a very diverse supply of energy and a lot of clean energies, as well as we're investing in improving the environmental performance of our traditional fossil fuel energy. And I would be delighted to take more of that clean energy and have you move off of the only... The problem I have is not Canada. The problem I have is this pipeline from this oil source. I mean, I just simply don't understand this argument that, well, if we don't take it, someone else is going to take it, so therefore we should take it. I mean, that's not the question on the table. The question is really, is the United States going to be complicit in burning megatons more of carbon dioxide that is going to, start, that is going to fuel runaway climate change? I mean, if, if the Chinese want to jump off the atmospheric version of the Golden Gate Bridge, that doesn't mean we have to jump off the bridge as well. I mean, I just don't get it. This is what the, the choice here facing Americans, Alex, is fundamentally, do we want to be consuming more oil? And I agree with you. I don't want to get, you know, lost in the weeds on a conversation about the fractions of a percent. Mm-hmm. The question really, as Carl said, is do we continue to make investments that leave us on the path of a carbon-intensive economy? Or when do we start to make the decisions? When do we make the hard decisions that say we are going to stop using oil or we're going to decrease our dependence on oil. And this is one of those litmus tests. This is one of those places where we draw the line in the sand. We say we have to start someplace. And the place to start is by saying no to the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, because otherwise we're just, we just keep postponing the future. Oh, we'll eventually get around to decreasing our dependence on oil. This is a place where we say, nope, we're going to make a U-turn and start pursuing a clean energy economy. Jason Mark is an editor at Earth Island Journal. Let's hear from Alex Purbey from TransCanada. So I think, you know, right off the bat, it, it's a question of perspective here and, it, it, and putting, 
putting things into perspective. So you heard Cassie say earlier, we, we, she talked a little bit about the, the U.S. coal fleet. Well, let, let, once again, I, I just want to give you a bit of numbers here. Uh, there are individual coal plants in the U.S. that produce half the emissions from the entire oil sand. So if, in fact, the U.S. wants to take a stand, I mean, I, I would argue there is a far more significant source of greenhouse gas in the U.S., that could have profound implications on greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. And the oil sands, you know, the U.S. is going to consume oil at some level, which will probably require imports for a very, very long time. The U.S. can choose to deprive themselves of this source of oil, but the oil is going to be, it is going to be developed, as, as I said before, and I think there are a lot of easier targets if people really want to make a meaningful Impact on reducing greenhouse gas consumption in in the U.S. And, and those things are happening. We've had Jim Rogers, chairman of, uh, of Duke Energy, here, the CEO of America's largest electricity, uh, and he's moving from coal to natural gas. There's a general trend in Canada and elsewhere to putting a price on carbon and moving toward cleaner fossil fuels and renewables. It's just that the tar stand stands out as this glaring exception, going in a dirtier direction. Well, it's funny. I mean, the numbers that I see from the Department of Energy expect that the actual percentage that coal-fired generation represents of this country's greenhouse gas emissions is expected to increase over the next decade as that coal fleet is more fully utilized than it is right now. So, in fact, I would argue that although people are looking at different technologies, I am not seeing a groundswell of movement to natural gas well, generation. Right, Carl spent $50 million. Let me, let me stop for a second, because there, there are some numbers here. Uh, in 2005, the United States was about to build 180 new coal-fired power plants, things like these were investments in a fossil f- future, like what's mm-hmm. happening in the tar sands and with Keystone XL. And the citizens' movements in the United States and economics combined, because both were a factor, uh, caused 155 of those not to be built. In the last three years since my organization began working on it, uh, America's electric utilities have announced the retirement of 10% of the existing coal fleet, and there is no meaningful number of new coal plants being built in this country. Our coal footprint is enormous. It is criminal. It is toxic. It is coming down. But it is very interesting when we debate the coal issue with Peabody Coal. They make exactly the same argument that you make. They say, if you don't use our coal here in the United States... Those people over in China or India are going to burn it. That's the argument they use to rebut our effort to get American investment dollars and American focus on clean energy substitutes. Keystone XL is making exactly the same argument. If you don't take it, it'll go somewhere else. If we don't give it to you, you'll take it from somewhere else. The argument we're making is we don't need it. We can get off oil. There are actually lots of things that are cheaper as a way of transporting than oil at $80 a barrel. Oil at $80 a barrel is not a bargain, and that's what tar sands oil has to cost at volume. We need to move this country, and I would hope that Canada would move itself, but I'm not a Canadian, so that's ultimately up to you. We need to say the fossil fuel era was the 20th century. It's over and we're going to invest in the future. And the, we cannot afford for tar sands oil to be the future. 
One of the, if, if I could just respond to that, I mean, I, I think one of the, 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 the really great things about Keystone is that this is a pipeline. It, overall, it's a 13, combined with all the phases, it's a $13 billion project that is going to put tens of thousands of Americans to work. But the beauty of it is, is that it is being financed 100% with capital from the private sector. TransCanada and the shippers that are shipping oil on this pipeline, if in fact there is a world 10 or 15 or 20 years from now where Canadian oil is not needed, well, then there is a really simple solution. That pipeline will run empty. And if it is needed, that pipeline will be available. And the people who are taking the risk are not the American public. They're the people who are investing and shipping on this pipeline. Alex Perbet is president of Energy and Oil Pipelines at TransCanada. Our other guests today at Climate One are Carl Pope, chairman of the Sierra Club, Jason Mark, editor at Earth Island Institute, and Cassie Doyle, the consul general for Canada here in San Francisco. I'm Greg Dalton. If you're just joining us, there's a full uh, version of this program on iTunes in the iTunes Store and Commonwealth Club, Climate One. Uh, Cassie Doyle, in 2009, the Catholic bishop, Luke Bouchard, uh, whose area, diocese, includes uh, the area in, in Athabasca where these oil sands are, are, are mined, said, uh, wrote a very detailed letter about the oil sands and said, the present pace and scale of development in the Athabasca oil sands cannot be morally justified. What's your response to that? Well, I think at that, at that time, the concern of the bishop was really a very overheated economy where there were, you know, the cost of housing was high, the cost of labor was certainly high. Um, I think that I, I can say that the other side to that story is that the communities around the oil sands have received significant economic benefits from its development in, in employment, in funding going into companies. For instance, aboriginal companies in the oil sands have received billions of dollars of contracts have gone into those communities around the oil sands. So, I mean, like any kind of boom, this is a major energy play, the largest in North America, you're going to get concerns around kind of an overheating of the economy. But the economic benefits for both Canada and the United States of the oil sands development can't be underestimated. It is a major economic driver. Uh, Jason, Mark, you've gone to those communities and reported. Give us briefly a little bit of what you saw when you when you went to these I, communities. I think actually what the bishop was talking about was was also the fact that many First Nations feel that the, the tar sands development is systematically shredding the rights that they've been guaranteed under treaties with the Canadian government. And so, you know, the, there are some commentators in Canada that like to set up this dichotomy between supposedly ethical oil from Canada and conflict oil from other countries. I mean, the fact is there's no such thing as fair trade gasoline. Um, conflict and strife follow oil, you know, like, like white on rice. I don't know. It's just part of the package. And you see that conflict in the First Nations communities that are really torn apart where, yes, some people have these companies that are doing very well and it is an engine of the economy. And at the same time, many people there feel and see that their traditional cultures and the ecosystems on which they've always depended are, are really being destroyed. You've got one, at least one First Nation, the Beaver Lake Cree, who filed a lawsuit against both the Canadian federal government and the government of Alberta, saying that their treaty rights have been violated by the, the tar sands development there. Now, that's going to slog its way through the Canadian courts for quite a while, but if the Canadian Supreme Court were to find that, in fact, this development has, has violated their First Nation rights, um, it's going to be very hard to say that this is ethical oil or that this is somehow somehow better than other places. I, I agree with Carl that, yes, um, 
the people, the First Nations, the Aboriginal peoples of Canada have more rights than, say, the Agoni people in the Niger Delta or than, say, women in Saudi Arabia. But I don't know that that's a, a, a really um, much of a consolation, that distinction is much of a consolation if you're a First Nations people, if you're the Beaver Lake Cree, and you're seeing your homeland being destroyed, and you're being told, well, you can either work on our mines, you can take a government handout, or you can starve. I mean, that's just not very fair. Cassie Doyle? Yeah, let me just say that every project in the oil sands is subject to a, a very robust environmental regime by by both the government of Alberta and the government of Canada. But can, the government of Canada, and that's where I come from, we know and we respect the fiduciary responsibilities we have to consult with First Nations on any major project. And through that consultation, there has been a significant number of accommodations, as they are called, with economic benefits. And those are negotiated with First Nations. So I, I just want to make sure that there, there isn't a, an, a sort of a perception that somehow the rights of Aboriginal people are being ignored. They are being carefully, carefully consulted. And a lot of the, these contracts and employment benefits have been negotiated as part of these projects. They have received, they are per capita doing better than almost Aboriginal groups in any other part of our country. And still, I think within those Aboriginal communities, yeah. there's a lot of ambivalence and there's mm-hmm. a lot of heartache over, mm-hmm. boy, you know, what, what you hear from everybody is, do you bite the hand that feeds you? Everybody recognizes that they are completely dependent now on the tar sand industry for jobs and for economy. And at mm-hmm. the same time, they feel really torn over the systematic destruction through the clear cutting, through the strip mining, through the in-situ mining that's happening in their traditional homelands. And speaking on jobs, uh, Carl Pope, the AFL-CIO and the Teamsters, uh, which has some of them have an alliance, a blue-green alliance with the Sierra Club, they endorsed this pipeline because of jobs. Well, they did, and they endorsed it as they usually do, because when you have a major construction project, they're pretty much always for it, so we don't agree with them, even though they're our allies on many things, on, on a lot of things. But I think one of the things that has not we haven't talked about is transporting and refining oil is not good for the United States. Having oil transported across our land is not a good thing. It might be a necessary thing in some occasions. Oil pipelines do leak. We've had quite a few lately. Do you agree refining that oil better than, than tankers? Safer than tankers? Safer than any alternative? Uh, well, an oil pipeline can be safer than a tanker. I don't know whether this one will be, but an oil pipeline, and this one has some rooting issues. I don't know why it was necessary to root it right across the Ogallala Aquifer in the way that it was. But the other thing is this oil, and we all agree it's all going to end up in Texas to be refined. And the way oil is refined in Texas is a devastating impact, not for Aboriginal communities, but for fence line communities, for American communities that live near those refineries. And Texas is legendary for its inadequate enforcement of refinery standards. In fact, during the very period that BP was having its catastrophic geyser in the Gulf, BP also had a breakdown in its oil refinery in Texas. And for six weeks, it poured millions of tons of toxic chemicals into the air, and the state of Texas did absolutely nothing. So it is not necessarily the case that just because this oil is going to be refined in the United States, it's going to be refined in a responsible, safe fashion. The fact is we know what the refinery standards are like in Texas. We know that Governor Perry doesn't much believe in regulating the oil industry, and we know that he's engaged in a very bitter fight with the federal government about whether we're going to enforce federal clean air standards 
in Texas. So there's an enormous environmental consequence here in the United States from becoming, in effect, the refining agent for the export of these car stands. And Alex raised the question and said, oh, occasionally it might be that a little teeny bit would get exported. Here are the figures. The Texas Gulf Coast, the petroleum district that includes the Texas Gulf Coast, which is called Pad 3, every year exports 1.8 million barrels of refined product to other countries a day. This is not just an occasional small leakage. This region already is a major oil exporter, and bringing more tar sands oil into it is going to make it an even more major exporter, which is great for Valero. It's great for Shell. Shell, in fact, just took one of their pipelines from Huma, Louisiana, to Texas, and they're proposing to run it the other ways because they don't need the oil in their refineries. They've got so much already they need to get down to Texas, to Louisiana. So what we're seeing is the United States undertaking not anything as serious as what's happening in Alberta. I want to be clear. Any project I can find on my cell phone is too big. Any hole in the ground that I can find on my cell phone is too big. And I can find the tar sands mines in Canada. They're like moonscapes. We're going to put the microphone out here uh, and invite you again on this side of the room, if you could please go through those doors, and we'll form a line here with the first person sitting in that chair. So my colleagues will put the the microphone out, and we invite your your audience questions. Uh, Before we we go there, uh, Carl Pope, California has a low-carbon fuel standard. And rather than having all these squabbles about this kind of fuel is dirtier than that kind of fuel, wouldn't it be better to have a a performance standard where the U.S. says – quantifies the amount of carbon in transportation fuels and set a national standard, and then it's not sort of favoring one type of fuel over another, but it's a quantitative level playing field for different fuel products. I would strongly favor such a standard, and that would then take your argument about these pipelines then to a question, is it the right route? So I would strongly favor that. I would also favor we could solve this debate about whether or not we're going to export this stuff by just putting an export ban. Uh, and I don't expect that either Cassie or Alex will support that. But if we just said by U.S. law, this oil can't be exported, then I would stop worrying that, in fact, it's going to actually increase oil prices in the United States instead of decrease them. Well, Alex Purvey, I mean, TransCanada does... Can I just check that? Sure. So you would be supportive of the pipeline? No, if I would be... No, no, I'm not, I would not be because there are other issues with the pipeline. But if we... The argument, I would not be arguing about the economic impacts. Then it would just be an environmental debate. Right now, I think it's a economic threat to the Midwest, and I think it's an environmental threat to Canada and the globe and Texas. The economic argument would go away if we had an export ban. And Alex Perbet, TransCanada is in the business of of moving energy. You don't harvest that energy. If there were a low-carbon fuel standard, what what would that mean for uh, TransCanada? You could move low-carbon fuels. Would you have a position on that? Well, you know, I, I think low-carbon fuel standards are something that could be considered. Of course, TransCanada's concern with that would be, much as was mentioned, that it that it'd be a level playing field and that it not favor one region or another. I'd tell you right now that, you know, the, the U.S., and we've been involved for over three years in this permitting process for Keystone, and there has been an extraordinary amount of work and effort put into assessing, quantifying, and reporting on the environmental impact of this project, but every day millions of barrels of oil show up on the shores of the U.S. in supertankers, and no one cares. 
what the uh, carbon content. If, if it comes by pipeline, then there's a big concern about it, but the vast majority of oil being imported into the U.S. has no one is looking at the carbon, and as long as it shows up at the dock, it's, uh, it's acceptable. Jason, Mark, quickly, and then we're going to go to our first audience I mean, question. The, the question really gets back to the, the millions of barrels that show up at U.S. shores every day, and I would really direct folks to check out a February 2009 study commissioned by TransCanada and prepared by an energy firm called Pervin and Gertz. And if you look on page 7, figure 3 of that, and I posted that this morning on our website at earthislandjournal.org, if you look at that, this pipeline will not decrease imports from outside North America. They will remain, and they project out to 2025. Again, what this pipeline will do is fill in some of the gap from declining heavy crude reserves in the U.S. and Mexico, and perhaps maybe a little bit from Venezuela. But we will be getting just as much oil from Saudi Arabia and the Middle East with this pipeline as without it. And so this idea of energy security or, or fuels from other countries, I just don't think it holds up. Jason Mark is an editor at the Earth Island Institute. Our guests also today here are Cassie Doyle, Consul General from Canada here in San Francisco, Carl Pope, Chairman of the Sierra Club, and Alex Pourbet, President of Energy and Oil Pipelines at TransCanada. I'm Greg Dalton. First audience question, please. Uh, to Alex's point that uh, tar sands should be the economic engine for Canada for the next five decades, curious if you think that Canadians outside Alberta welcome that prospect, um, and in particular, if as they have rejected the Enbridge Gateway Pipeline, um, should the U.S. should U.S. citizens be excited about a similar pipeline? I, I, I could answer that, but that might be a better question for Cassie to answer, I think. Yeah, one thing I, I think is important is to, to say about the economic benefits of the oil sands is that they extend well beyond Alberta. So there's, there's actually at different points in the cycle plane loads of Canadians that are flown in from Atlantic Canada to work in the, in the oil sands, but the supply chain benefits extend across the country. And when it comes to the Northern Gateline, Gateway Pipeline, which is the proposed pipeline out to the West Coast, there hasn't been a decision taken on that. There are groups that are certainly opposed to that. There's also communities that are in favor of it, as often is the case when you get economic activity with an environmental impact. There is a divided public opinion. Let's have our next audience question, please. Hello. My name is Andre Duggan with Interfaith Power and Light. And, Alex, you had said that the people who are taking the risk are not the Americans. Um, I'm wondering if you feel I'm very con- we're very concerned about this pipeline going over uh, the country's largest aquifer, which provides 30% of American drinking water mm-hmm. and which um, irrigates the country's breadbasket. Could you please speak to the um, risks? And I'd actually like to hear from um, Carl. Uh, or, um. Sure. Sure. Well, it, it, I, th- I think right off the bat, it, it, there is nothing, there is no principle that TransCanada is more focused on than safety, both of all of our all of our assets and safety of the people who could be affected by them. We've been in this business, building and operating pipelines for 60 years, and if we did not operate them safely we would lose our social license to operate. So we are very, very focused on safety. What I, w- what I would say is the Ogallala Aquifer is a massive uh, aquifer. It covers uh, parts of eight states, including significant, in addition to Nebraska, it covers very significant parts of Oklahoma and Texas. Right now, there are tens of thousands of miles of hazardous liquids pipelines 
that are presently located on top of that aquifer. They've operated for decades. They've operated safely. On top of that, there are there have been hundreds of millions, if not billions, of barrels of crude oil that have been produced through vertical pipelines, wells, through that aquifer system over the last hundred years, and it has been done safely. The pipeline we're building, uh, as, as was stated directly by the Department of State in the final environmental impact statement, uh, if constructed with, uh, in accordance with the 57 special conditions that TransCanada agreed to, the State Department said themselves that this pipeline would have a measure of safety over any other crude oil pipeline uh, being operated in the U.S. We are completely comfortable that we can construct that pipeline and operate that pipeline safely uh, in areas where there, there is an aquifer. You know, you look at Nebraska. Nebraska already has 20,000 miles of pipeline across that state, many, many miles of which already go through the pipeline. They produce 6,000 barrels of oil a day through the aquifer. We are comfortable with our state-of-the-art pipeline that we're going to be very uh, safe in that area. Well, let me, I was asked to respond, so i just quickly say, uh, I am sure that BP was comfortable they could produce Macondo safely. I'm sure that Tokyo Electric was confident that their power plants would survive the earthquake and the tsunami. The fact is, there are some situations in which, yes, you may have a very long track record of something catastrophic not happening. But when something catastrophic happens, you can't undo it. And the question is, which is being raised particularly in the state of Nebraska and particularly in the context of the routing of this pipeline through a particularly sandy and area of the state which is viewed by people there as being particularly at risk, why shouldn't we adopt yet another layer of safety and reconfigure the routing of this pipeline because whatever reassurances and confidence TransCanada may have, they have had pipeline spills. Every pipeline operator has pipeline spills, most of which don't end up being catastrophic. But one of these days, one of them will. The bigger the pipeline and the more vital the water source, the higher the risk of a catastrophic spill. Let's go to... I, I, I was just going to say this, this very issue of the routing of the pipeline was exhaustively considered by the Department of State in the draft EIS, the supplemental EIS, and the final EIS. And the conclusion yeah, that they... The environmental impact statement. The, sorry, the, envi- the, the three environmental impact statements. And their final conclusion on that, and the final environmental impact statement, was they considered a number of other pipeline right-of-way routes and they came to the conclusion that none of those routes offered an environmental benefit. If, if we, we have an obligation when we route a pipeline to minimize the environmental impact. Every time you start lengthening the pipeline by moving around one area or another, you increase the miles of that pipeline, and that very significantly increases the environmental impact. And the State Department, after exhaustively looking at this very issue, and hearing both sides, all of the sides, came to the conclusion that this was not a significant issue. So the conservative Republican senator from Nebraska, Mike Johan, still has concerns about the routing of this. Uh, we will, Jason, quickly, we want to get to this next question. Um, yes, next question, please. Hi, my name is Rose Braz, and I'm with the Center for Biological Diversity. And I think any discussion of the Keystone XL pipeline needs to 
really start with and recognize that as of today, more than 600 people have been arrested in front of the White House. And these are people, climate scientists, farmers, uh, climate activists, communities of faith, people from all across the country, all ages. And that because they're doing exactly what Jason was talking about, is putting that line in the sand, saying no more expansion of this oil infrastructure, and um, really calling on President Obama, who has this within his power. You know, this is not a congressional discussion. This is not something that needs to happen in international negotiations. We um, are saying this is a line in the sand. This is a moment, when we, long overdue moment, when we need to say no more to this, the, the carbon, our carbon addiction. And this is a moment that's going to happen because the people really are standing and, um, and, okay. and being arrested as we speak right now. So thank you. Who wants to read I mean, Cassie Doyle? um, Can I just say that I think that whether or not the Keystone Pipeline is built will not have any impact on the amount of carbon that the United States as as a country uses. So I think there has been an unfair targeting because, as we mentioned, there still are tankers coming in, you know, bringing millions and millions of barrels of oil into the United States on tanker, which is a much less safe way to, to transport oil. So I just think that the targeting of this particular project... But if, we, if the United States imports oil sands, which has a higher carbon intensity mm-hmm. than the alternative fuel, it will drive up the... But, the, but, 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 sorry, but yeah, wait a sec. Yeah. That's assuming that the U.S. is... If it doesn't import Canadian oil, it's going to import light, sweet oil from elsewhere. The fact of the matter is, if Keystone doesn't go ahead, those refineries, unless prevented to, from doing so are going to be sourcing heavy crude, which has identical greenhouse gas emissions characteristics as, as oil sands oil from Alberta. And that's assuming also, I mean, there's a real assumption here, again, is that U.S. oil demand is going to remain constant or go up. And that's actually not, from 2000 to 2009, U.S. oil, again, according to Cambridge Energy Research Associates, which is one of the, the most respected and conservative energy firms, um, says that between 2000 and 2009, U.S., oil consumption decreased 10%. Two reasons. One was the recession was the most obvious one. And the second one was increasing fuel economy of our cars and trucks, which is actually going to get better and better according to new rules announced by the Obama administration and agreed to by all the folks who are having Bill Ford and GM, et cetera. We're actually looking at either a plateau or, if we make the right political decisions, a decrease in oil demand. The reason why the energy oil companies in Alberta are so eager for this pipeline is because they've got this massive supply of stuff. This is really, I think, supply-side economics. They need to get this stuff to market. Or, in the words of, I think it was the energy minister in Alberta, they're going to be sitting on landlocked bitumen, tar. You know, they're going to be sitting on this massive resource that they're going to have a hard time getting to market. That's why this pipeline is important. And I, and again, I don't, I don't buy the China argument. This is really a discussion about what are the choices we're going to make. And at some point, we need to make the choice that we're not going to be making investments in all of this new infrastructure that locks us into business as usual. Jason Mark is an editor at Earth Island Institute. We're discussing uh, Canadian oil imports here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Let's have another audience question, please. I'm James George with EnviroBeat. Um, my concern is that the tar sands increases the total amount of fossil fuels, whether it's better or worse. And I'd like to know from the panelists, how long do we have before we reach tipping points and does this expansion of the fossil fuels put us in a very dangerous position? Thanks. Carl Pope, you want to take that one first? Well, we have already reached the earliest of the tipping points. 
uh, the weather you experience for the rest of your life will have been influenced by the increase in greenhouse pollutants in the atmosphere. Uh, there are more severe tipping points coming. Uh, we don't know precisely what the level of damage is at a specific atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide and methane. But we know that we certainly cannot have confidence that we are not getting close to what most people would consider catastrophic tipping points. And it is clear that the longer we continue to believe that, oh, we're running out of sweet crude, but there's all this heavy stuff gunk in the ground, and we'll just use that, that's not sending us the right message. One of the important things about stopping the coal-fired power plants that were going to be built in the United States was it sent America's public utilities a message, get serious about renewables. If we stop the Keystone XL pipeline, it will send America's industries a message, get serious about getting off oil. Next audience question, please. Okay, um, my name is Lily Stiefel from the Stiefel Family Foundation, and we support early-stage renewable energy startups through grants and investments. I actually personally would love to see our oil coming from Canada rather than Saudi Arabia with its human rights records. That's a personal opinion. I'm just puzzled as to why, if it's not getting exported, the oil is getting refined all the way down in Texas when it's coming from Alberta. It's just more of a logistical slash efficiency question. And, I, yeah, I'd love to see it stay within this market. Why can't it be refined farther north, closer to its point of origin? So, so it, it, thanks for that. It, basically it's an infrastructure issue. Uh, the U.S. Gulf Coast refining, uh, region has, is the largest refining, re, has the largest refining capacity on earth. It's about, I think it's around 8.6 or 8.8 million barrels a day of refining capacity. Uh, those refineries have relied, uh, in large measure on Mexico and Venezuela for the crude that they produce. Mexico's crude is, uh, production is declining precipitously, and uh, Chavez in Venezuela has made it quite clear that he intends to sell his oil to countries other than the U.S. So you have the uh, refiners in the U.S. are looking for sources of crude, uh, and it, it's, you know, you, you have this continental source of crude oil. This, you know, it's the third largest reserves of oil on the planet, 175 billion barrels. Uh, of a country uh, that shares uh, a lot of uh, uh, strong ally of the U.S., uh, stable government, stable geopolitically. So it was just very natural to, to connect those. And uh, building, building refineries are extraordinary expensive propositions, and so it makes much more sense to utilize uh, capacity in, in, ex in existing refineries than it does to build brand-new refineries. And let me just point out that, that, in fact, by getting this oil to refineries in the Gulf Coast, they can get this oil to international markets. They're very clear in their own internal an analyses that this is about getting a higher price for the oil, and they can get a higher price for the oil by getting it to water. I mean, there was a quote last week from somebody saying, crude's got to get to water. And the reason crude has to get to water is so it can get world prices, OPEC prices. And that is a large part of what this is all about. And I would not expect to hear either the government of Canada or the government of Alberta or uh, the pipeline advocates say, fine, we'll make a binding commitment that none of this oil will be exported. I do not look for that to happen, although it would be interesting if it did. 
And one of the alternatives is, is, is to British Columbia, where, in fact, it would be exported. I mean, wouldn't mm-hmm. that be a preferential route for uh, TransCanada? It's shorter. Uh, it's, it's, it's uh, I don't know, maybe it isn't shorter. Um, to go, go to B.C. rather than to Texas? Then, likely, if, if you did it, the, you know, the, the, oil, the oil wants to go where there's existing refinery capacity, right? The, as I said, the largest refining center on the planet is on the U.S. Gulf Coast, and it is the, the cheapest route to market for the, that oil. And, and I want to be clear. I want to be clear on this. The Keystone Oil Pipeline is not just planning on moving Canadian oil. Uh, this is an 800,000 barrel a day pipeline. We are expecting to be transporting 250,000 barrels a day of oil from North Dakota and Montana and oil from Cushing. Uh, that is already included in our pipeline. So this pipeline is not just moving uh, Canadian oil. This oil is moving landlocked and pipeline-constrained uh, U.S. oil to, to market. And, you know, once, once again, what, you know, this issue that this oil is going offshore, that the resulting refined products are offshore, as I said, this is a refining market that has almost 9 million barrels a day of capacity and you have a you have a country in the U.S. that consumes 19 million barrels a day of refined products, produces 4 million barrels of oil. I think people here can do the math. Uh, but th- it's not one market. You don't necessarily. You may well import oil to the East Coast and export oil from the Gulf. We're doing it right now. The imports that come into the West Coast and the East Coast don't get displaced by oil that's refined on the Gulf Coast. That oil that's refined on the Gulf Coast goes wherever the market price is highest and the transportation is lowest. It's really important to understand, per your question, that this will not displace any barrels of Saudi Arabian oil. Don't take my word for it. Look at the TransCanada investor reports. This is about making up for the expected shortfalls in American and Mexican and perhaps Venezuelan heavy crude. Those refineries down there are especially equipped, as Alex was saying, are especially equipped to process heavy oil. They've got cokers and they can actually take all this stuff. This, the, the Saudi oil is what we call sweet light crude. It's, those refineries are worried about having shortfalls in the heavy crude that they've been processing for years. This is about making up for shortfalls in U.S. and Mexican declining reserves. And I would say we shouldn't make up those shortfalls. We should find ways to have a, you know, electrified mass transit system that runs off a green grid um, and be doing that instead of finding, you know, alternatives. We're, the, the oil industry is not going to get us off of oil. Let's go to Cassie Doyle, then we have to wrap this up. When you ask, isn't it better for Canada to export its oil to China? I think that negates the value of the trading relationship between Canada and the United States. It was a $500 billion trading relationship last year. It produces enormous economic benefits on both sides of the border. But more importantly, there's no two countries in the world that have the same level of aspirations when it comes to the environment. We share the same values. So there is a natural geographic imperative around why we would want to trade with the U.S., but it also, over the you know history of this relationship, I think that there's more to be reaped when it comes to addressing environmental challenges between Canada and the United States than Canada and any other country. We're at the end of our time here. I just want to ask, uh, what next? By the end of this year, uh, President Obama will say yes or no uh, to this pipeline. Carl Pope, will there be litigation if this is approved? Uh, there will be litigation. There will be legislation. There will be federal legislation. I think there may well be state legislation. 
uh, I think the, there are a long series of hurdles before uh, ground is broken on this pipeline. Alex Perbang, what's what lies ahead? I say it looks like things are going toward approval. The State Department is certainly very positive. The environmental impact was maybe your biggest hurdle so far. Uh, you think you have a better case on the sort of national interest grounds on security and economics. What lies ahead? Well, you, you know, I, uh, the, the people in the State Department, when they, when they announced the FAIS last week, uh, they, they, they made it clear that the decision has not been made, and, and I think that very much is the case. We're now going into this, what is called a 90-day national interest determination, where up to this point, the work has been largely focused on the environmental impacts of the project, which culminated in this final environmental impact statement. The national interest determination now takes into account not just the environment, it takes into account the economic benefits for the U.S., energy security benefits, uh, tax benefits, so on and so forth. And we certainly think we have, uh, we, we have a very strong case. This is a project, you know, as I said, uh, it, is, it is truly shovel-ready. We're going to put 20,000 Americans to work. We're going to start doing that within days of receiving this permit. And we're going to create $20 billion of stimulus for the American economy, and that's going to occur at a, in, in regions that are among the most depressed in the U.S., and those jobs are coming without a penny of government subsidy, and they're waiting on this approval. We have to end it there. Our thanks to our participants today. That was Alex Perbay, President of Energy and Oil Pipelines at TransCanada, Carl Pope, Chairman of the Sierra Club, Jason Mark, Editor of the Earth Island Institute, uh, Earth Island Journal, um, and Cassie Doyle as Consul General for Canada here in San Francisco. I'm Greg Dalton. The full version of this conversation is available in the iTunes store at Climate One. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for coming.